A very warm welcome to you, David Davis. Unlike all of the 45, 20 questions with podcasts I've done so far, we are actually together in person in your lovely office in the Houses of Parliament, which makes it slightly different and better in, in many ways. You are the MP for Halton Price and Howden. You've just taught me how to pronounce that. <laughs> You've been the MP for that constituency, although I think it previously had a different name. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. Since 1987. That's right. So that, by my calculation, is a long time. Yeah. You were, of course, Shadow Home Secretary. Uh-huh. First of all, well, latterly under David Cameron, and that's what I, th- I think interests me most, and we'll come to that because of your resignation on a matter of principle. You ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party twice. Mm-hmm. The first time in 2001 when you came fourth, the second time when you came second. Yeah. First time was much more fun. <laughs> well, you can tell me all about that in a minute. But the second time, you came up against a man who I think didn't use any notes, did he, David Cameron? Well, <laughs> And that helped him. And, and then, of course, perhaps most famously, and to some infamously, depending on which side of the Brexit divide they may be, you were also Brexit secretary. Mm-hmm. You were secretary for the Department of Exiting yep. the EU between 2016 and 2018, at which point... Dominic Raab, who I think had previously worked for you, he then took over. So there is a huge amount to talk about. And I want in this interview, if possible, to get a sense of you as well as your politics. The first thing I'm going to ask you about, because this is why I wanted to interview you in in, in the first place. And it goes back to that resignation in 2008. What fascinated me about it, and as someone I would describe myself on on the centre-left, I had a lot of respect for you as a Conservative, saying, hang on a second, there seem to be one too many infringements of our civil liberties going on, as you saw it, and you wanted to draw that out. By resigning your seat and calling a by-election, you wanted there to be a proper public debate about what was going on. And I want you to tell me about that, and then I've got a follow-up question, because the follow-up question is one of the things I find fascinating. All right, well, let's let's first understand the, the backdrop. We'd we had defeated, the first defeat of Tony Blair in the Commons was on 90 days detention without charge um, when, when Blair was still Prime Minister. And that was quite contentious at the time because you know, shortly after 7-7, people really didn't care about the civil liberties of, of, of quotes, terrorists, you know, forgetting, of course, that not everybody who's arrested is actually guilty, you know. Um, and we won that, but we won that. It was quite a hard-fought battle, but we won it. Uh, and then what happened was Blair, uh, was Brown tried to repeat what Blair had attempted, but a slightly smaller target, 48 days rather than 90 days, uh, presumably in the hope he could do something Blair could. Uh, and we were, we were still on track to defeat him on that when he essentially bought off the DUP. You know, there was some deal struck with the DUP uh, and we lost it. Now, my concern at this point was this. It would it be entirely possible that Brown would call an election within the next year or just, say, the next 15 months. We lost that. He could have forced a... But I thought we would win in the Lords, for reasons I'll tell you in a second. Uh, and we could then face a Parliament Act in position a year later. 13 months technically, but a year later. And I was very worried that with an election pending, the Cameron-Osborne axis, who basically let me get on with my civil liberties uh, approach to the world, which they didn't really believe in, um, uh, faced with an election, they wouldn't take any risks and they give in 
to the 48 days. So that was my concern, that not just that we'd lost then, but that although we could defeat them in the Lords, uh, we, I would then be faced with a situation of having to live with an incoming possible Tory government with this monstrosity of a policy. And 48, day, uh, 48 days uh, detention without charge means you can lock people up for seven weeks, basically, and they don't know why they're charged. That, I say that because that's what happened with the 28 days uh, uh, lockup. There were people released at 27 days, never having been told what the charge were. So that was the reasoning. Uh, I also knew, don't ask me how, uh, that uh, Eliza Manning and Buller, the recently retired head of MI5, in her maiden speech in the Lords, was going to condemn this policy. So, you know, this is presented as a, as a uh, uh, counter-terrorism policy, yet the head of MI5 says it's not necessary. And that's what happened. And that happened in the middle of the by-election. So I called the by-election, as you say, to win the argument on this, and it did that. We went from 72% of the public approving of the 48 days detention without charge to 72%, it was almost exact reversal, the end of my by-election, disapproving. So that was successful, and in the middle of it all, we also threw in ID cards, privacy, you name it. We basically made it a, a, uh, uh, a generally a civil a rule of law. I always think of it as, mu- as much rule of law as it is anything else. Rule of law and civil liberties by election. Doing so, I annoyed the hell out of David Cameron. Uh, he hated it, and some of the rest of my party, but so be it. You know, sometimes these things have a price. So what fascinates me about that is that you felt so strongly about these issues, issues that I feel very strongly about as well, and that at the same time you very publicly support or have supported the death penalty. <laughs> and I've always wanted to ask you <laughs> how you how you square those two things. Well, the, the the truth is I would never vote to return the death penalty for a very for a very simple reason. But when we are consider this as a moral and logical conundrum. When we're at war with ISIS and we identify an ISIS uh, major actor, what do we do? We send a predator drone up and we kill them, summarily, without trial, without charge. You know? And the public's perfectly happy with that. And it's always seemed to me that if you were able, and this is where the issue, the moral issue comes in, if you are able to prove accurately i.e. with nearly zero or zero doubt that somebody had committed, let's say, a murder of a child, um, uh, then, um, although my test of this is you have to prove twice that they're guilty of more than one murder, uh, but let's say they've been a serial murderer of children, then there is, a moral, there is a moral right on society's part to take their life away. You know? um, nobody, nobody argues today about whether it was right or wrong to execute the Nazi war criminals. Nobody caused a fuss over Saddam Hussein being hanged. And as I say, on a day-to-day basis, we kill people in pursuit of defence of the state or defence of people. So it seems to me there's a logical difference there. Now, of course, what happens is when a journalist talks about this, they don't, they don't go... I always tell them the fine detail. You know, I would, only, I would only allow this if we had forensic data in two completely independent cases, so you're 100% sure. They never talk about that. They just say, you know, in, in favour of that. It's a moral issue. And I just take the view that uh, there are times when the state has that moral right. It's never going to happen. Um, and, I, and, and ironically, 
um, yeah, there's almost a family link. My grandfather was sent to prison by Justice Goddard. If you remember, the, do you recognise the name? Lord Justice Goddard was the last person to sentence somebody hanging, and of course he got it wrong. Do you remember? The let him have it, whatever it was, uh, incident. So I'm very acutely conscious of the importance of avoiding error. And you, you know, if there's any chance of being wrong, you can't do it. But I've always said there's a moral case and you shouldn't run away from the moral case. You'd accept, though, and I, I disagree very strongly with you on that, but this yeah, isn't a podcast about me, it's a podcast no, no, it's about fine. you. But you would accept that there are not, lots of people, not just me, who would yeah. argue very strongly that there is a moral case precisely against what you say, that the state does not have a moral right yeah. in this instance... So where... the, the implication of that is that, you know, no matter what somebody does, mass murder, genocide, torture, killing children, you know, paedophilia and murder, all that sort of stuff, uh, there's nothing at all which uh, is, uh, can be punished by, that justifies taking the life away. That's the, that, that, those are the corollaries. And, but, and let's be clear for your listeners, this is not a practical argument because it's never going to happen, I don't want it to happen, but I just think in moral terms you've got to understand that. And I suspect if you polled the people in my terms, you'd get about 70-80% agree with me. I'm just interested in where, where you feel that morality comes from. Um, because, because I think the right to life is not absolute at the cost to everybody else. That's the point. The reason we, the reason we happily pull the trigger on a drone strike, and I don't like drone strikes, for, for precisely because you get the wrong person, you kill the family, you hit a wedding party, all those things, and they're, they're, they're counterproductive. But the reason we do that is theoretically to save somebody else's life. Same argument applies in, uh, in, 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 a, in a justice argument. Al- always, justice is about a number of things, but essentially it's about saving the innocent, right? That's what it's about. Uh, and that's by a combination of deterrence and prevention and punishment. Why did you go into politics? Well, it's by accident, lack of willpower. Uh, you know, I mean, um, I was brought up. I mean, I'm, listen, what I'm going to give you is a rationalisation rather than knowledge, right? Uh, I was brought up by my grandparents when I was young. I was the son of a single mum when it was very unfashionable, to put it mildly. And we, we lived in a little, little um, uh, prefab, one of these asbestos boxes, they built after the war. And my grandfather used to talk to me when I was four years old, like an adult. You know, he'd, he'd talk about moral issues like what we've just been discussing. He'd talk about, I mean, I remember one day, you know, a charity worker came to the door and, you know, he had no money. He was unemployed, been unemployed for decades. He was blacklisted. And he, and he went and got a half crown. Sorry, what, what would that be today? About 10p in today's money. But um, out, he rifled it out, went out and gave it to him. And he came back and then he said, now, you know, I gave him some money because whatever chat, I've forgotten the charity. He said, but actually the state, because he's a communist, the state should do this. This should be the responsibility of the state and, and so on. So you know, that's, that's, that's how he, uh, you know, and, and so we had a conversation about that. You know, you know, I'm, I'm four year old. You know. So I start by being, if you like, brainwashed with early age. Um, and we both share, by the way, the, the fact that we have, you have a, a, a communist grandparent and I had a communist yeah, grandparent, although yeah. she... My grandmother, Haiti, once she worked out what was going on in the name of communism, of course, stopped being a communist. Yeah, my stepfather was in that position. Um, uh, so it wasn't gran- your grand? Was it your grandfather? My grandfather, yeah, no, yeah. I, I'm giving you two different people. My, my grandfather stayed really sort of pro-communist, 
and an apologist for Russia in particular until his dying day. You know, um, he was not. I mean, he had fought so hard so long. He was not about to change his mind at the last minute. You know, I mean, bear in mind he went to prison in the 30s for leading a demonstration on behalf of the unemployed. That that's where he starts. You know, and and. Uh, he ended up being blacklisted because he was a Communist Party member, so he didn't get a job for 20 years, uh, and so on. So you know, there's, there's lots of, you know, with, with human beings, they're, they're precious in both directions. Whereas my stepfather, the, the, the man my mother eventually married, uh, not my father, not my natural father, uh, he was, I think, a Communist in his early days. He was always a Labour Party member, and he was a shop steward, father of the chapel later on. But he, after, I think, after Hungary, after the invasion of Hungary, like a lot of British communists at the time, he he, he left the Communist Party. Uh, so, you know, but it really doesn't matter. What it meant was he talked to me about these things. And so, you know, through... Uh, and over the table, over the dinner table, when, when, when I had a stepfather, which is sort of later on in life, um, we'd have arguments about, you know trade union matter. He'd come over and talk about the trade union or he'd talk about... In, in those days, nobody listening to this would, would know this or remember this, but there was a great battle over the leadership of the uh, electricians' trade union. A guy called... Is uh, it Les Cannon? I may have misremembered the name, but there was a moderate who had a big battle for the control of the union and my stepfather's on his side, so I'd hear all about that politics and the left-v-left left politics and so on. And I thought of myself as on the left when I was a schoolboy. Indeed, I think when we had a mock election, I, I stood as a communist, very unsuccessfully. <laughs> and um, uh, so I was always involved in it. And then when I went to university, I was at a very left-wing university at Warwick University, which was the centre of sit-ins and, and, and demos and God knows what else, at the same time as the Great Sorbonne Riots in 1968, that era of... Of um, student uh, insurrection. Were you expected to go to university? By whom? By, By your family? No, no. I mean, going to university was not normal. Uh, I mean, bear in mind, today if half the population goes. In those days, even, even, even if you're a middle class, I mean, only about five percent of the population went. Um, my stepfather, I think, left school at fourteen or fifteen. Um, went off to join the Navy. Uh, my mother left school at 14. Uh, and indeed, when I eventually decided... Well, in fact, when I stayed in the sixth form, I was required to pay my parents rent. Right? So I'd go out and earn money when I started up for my own levels. But, you know, but also, I mean, I didn't learn to read until I was seven. You know, I wasn't an instant success at school, partly because we were changing homes and, you know, my mother was in London and <clears throat> moving there and so on. So all sorts of reasons which don't matter. But the... Uh, I didn't read until I was seven. Normally, th this day and age, you'd be a special needs kid if not reading at seven. Um, but I was lucky to a couple of teachers, first on English and then on maths. One's called Williams, the Englishman, um, uh, English teacher, uh, and then Miss Barwood on the maths. Uh, just decided that I was smarter than I looked or smarter than I was doing or whatever, and they made me... They basically put my nose to the grindstone and made me do it. So it was only quite late on, after I passed 11+, plus that people started to think of that. My teachers started to think of that. My parents never did. Um, and that was that, really. Um, so where was the Toryism, the conservatism forged? Because you were debating with your stepfather, who was a communist at mm -hmm. the time, 
And then you went to a left-leaning university, yeah. in your words. Yeah. So how did you become a conservative? Well, partly that. Um, I mean, a variety of things. I, be, partly because of the economic circumstances. I had to go out to work, and partly because I screwed up my A-levels. The, I went out to work for a year. Uh, I joined the Territorial Army. Gave me a very different view of the Soviet Union. Uh, and all those things just... I didn't know, I wasn't conscious at the time, but obviously percolated into my mind, right? I then get to university. It's a very left-wing university. There are lots of demos and so on and, and sit-ins and all this sort of stuff. It was quite famous at the time. And I found I didn't agree with the arguments being put. I was the other side. I mean, I was, there were times when I stood up in a, a room whose fire limit was 400, and I, I, I bet there were 1,000 people in that room and all screaming at me. <laughs> um, because I said, you're ruining the university. You're not going to stop the Vietnam War or whatever it was we were demoing about. Um, you know, you, you, but you're, but you're, you know, you're, you're going to do damage the university. The funding of the university is going to dry up because it's all from business, or large part from business. Uh, and we're going to get nothing done. And what's the point of doing this? So there was that sort of argument was sort of where it started. And within a year or so, I ended up being the chairman of the of the University Conservative Association, and I eventually ended up being the national chairman of the Conservative Association uh, of 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 the national uh, the thing called the Federation of Conservative Students, which was a about fifteen thousand strong body of students. Uh, so it was sort of mixed. It was circumstance, really. I mean, a great deal of my politics is driven by circumstance. So at the same time as I was doing that, I was also leading a demonstration calling for the release of Rudy Dushka, who was a Marxist or, well, one of the many um, fragmentary left-wing groups in Germany, you know, and he was locked up by the German government. So there was a very strange mixture in modern... Well, people would see it. I don't see it as strange. People would see it as strange. A strange mixture of different uh, people's uh, of of liberty and justice and rule of law and economic rights and so on you know uh, so at the same time for example and I I've sort of slightly changed my view on this but not enormously I made a speech when I was a leader of the, the National Conservative Students uh, at party conference in favour of workers rights you know in favour of you know, in those days it was quite fashionable to to talk about workers on the board and so on but this is what I think makes you such an interesting politician. Mm. And of course, you got caught up in, you cho- you, maybe you could say you chose to get caught up in because you cared very strongly about it, the partisanship surrounding Brexit. Oh, yeah. And it inevitably, we'll come to that. But you mentioned the Territorial Army. Mm. And I think around the time you were attempting to become Conservative leader for the second time, mm. it was much talked about, wasn't it, that you had served in the Territorial SAS, mm. no less. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. We can hear the bells in, in, in the background, yeah. the Westminster bells. But tell us just a little bit about that, because I think people had quite a lot of respect for you for that. Well, I mean, yeah, look, people over-glamorise it for a start. That's the, that's the first thing to understand. Is a lot of it is, 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 you know, is not sexy James Bond stuff. It's quite sort of gritty stuff. Um, uh, I was, I'd, I'd left school, I'd left home. I mean, basically, I had a, I had a flaming row with my stepfather on the night before my A-levels, right? Uh, it was fairly physical route, let's put it that way. And so I walked out. So I spent the night before my first A-level walking the streets of London, which wasn't a great prep. Um, but anyway, so I ended up, no home, no university to go to because I screwed up my A-levels, and 
just finding a new way in life. All of a sudden, it's all changed everything, right? And I thought, you know, I'm quite interested in this. I, 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 I quite fancy parachuting. I quite fancy doing some of the other uh, things. And so I went along to see them, and they were just starting a selection course. I was dead lucky in timing turns. And I talked through what they did. I looked a bit of their history. I read about a man, various people. Anders Lassen was one. Paddy Mac. People who watch Rogue Heroes now will see some of these names. Uh, David Sterling. Um, Paddy Main was a complete psychopath. Um, uh, and others. Uh, who were obviously a group of very brave people. Slightly romantic. Remember, the, the, sort of, the Second World War was in living memory for adults. Not for me, but for adults then. You know, my, my stepfather had served on HMS Nelson uh, uh, in, the, in, in the Far East, I think. Uh, and so these were all sort of memories, uh, uh, or the, the other people's memories, but, but they were there. And, I, and it just attracted me. There was a certain, there was a certain romance to it, but, but also it was, it was quite tough. Uh, I think the pass rate was 8%, something like that. And, and that was sort of normal, you know. And uh, I think my course was a bit less than that. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is worth doing. And Did it toughen you up? Um, I mean, had you always been tough? Had you been tough as a boy? Well, I grew up in South London. Um, the, you know, in a work, in a, well, we, we started the prefab in Yorkshire, but then when we came to London, we lived in a slum. There's no other word for it, really. It was two up, two down, gaslight. Uh, I don't know whether we had an electric plug. I don't think we did. We had an outside loo, no, no bathroom. So that's your sort of backdrop, right? Then we moved up in the world to a council estate. <laughs> it may sound odd to say it that way, but it's a much nicer place. But it was a council estate, you know. Um, and, the, and, the, and the boys were, 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 were quite tough, you know. And you had to hold your own, you know. And you had to see off the bullies and all of that. Um, and when I... When I went, when I passed my 11 plus, I, and that, I, that was a surprise to me, by the way, when I passed my 11 plus, um, I thought, oh, crikey, what am I, what am I going to do at grammar school? There were going to be posh people there. Of course, they're not. But in the, in the, in the mind of a young 10, 11 year old, I'm going to I'm gonna have to see them all off. So that you have to use my fists. So I sort of got into that groove, really. Um, so no, I, I, I'm not particularly tough, but, you know, I'd like my rugby I, and, and, I, and I knew I'd stand up for myself. Have you ever had your nose broken? Uh, five times, yeah. Um, in fights? Um, no, three times, three times uh, was rugby. Once was an accident and once was lack of social skills. <laughs> lack of social skills. <laughs> that means a fight, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was the extent of your experience with the Territorial SAS? Only a couple of years, two or three years. Because uh, truth was... You know, within a few years, I was doing finals, you know, and to... to, to, to so do... did you go back to do your A-levels then? Yeah, I, I sort of retook them. You retook them? Yeah. Retook and you were never homeless during this period? Well, for a day or two. For a day or two. And then, and then, I, then I just found a... Um, we used to call up my auntie. She wasn't really, she was a friend of my mum's. And she, you know, she, she, was, she didn't have her own children, and I was just... Uh, uh, when I was very young, I, she used to spoil me, you know, bring home cakes. She was a waitress, so she'd bring home a cream cake. And you know, it may sound ridiculous, but, you know, this is sort of the end of rationing. Britain's a lot poorer than it is today. 
you know, and so, you know, a cream cake was a great thing, you know, so, so that was her, anyway, I, she, 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 she basically, I slept on her couch for about several months, and then, uh, then I, then I found her, uh, once I was earning some money, I found a, uh, a room, uh, in the street, it was, it wasn't that much better than the, than the blasted slum, I mean, it was, um, it was, a, it was in a wooden frame house, and it was just next to, the uh, train line that joined Clapham Junction with Victoria and Waterloo. It must have been the busiest bloody train line in the world because every three minutes, the whole house would shake. <laughs> and I had a little black and white television, uh, sort of second-hand, and it would, and it would just all it, the, the sort of lines across the screen and then we'd get it back again then three minutes later. So I could never... It certainly stopped me being addicted to television, that was for sure. But this is a very attractive story, isn't it, for someone who might have gone on to become Conservative Party leader. And a very different story, not to denigrate his own story, but a very, very different story to David Cameron's background. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a face-off between, a runoff between you two in 2005, as we mm-hmm. mentioned much earlier. Mm-hmm. How exciting was it to be part of that race, to get that close to becoming the leader of your party and, and then potentially going on to become Prime Minister of Britain? How, how do you look back on that, that second experience? I don't think of it as exciting. It's quite a long grind going on. I mean, Michael Howard obviously didn't want me to win, wanted David to win, so he spread the process out. If it had been a very quick process, it would have been over in no time at all. And you'd been his shadow Home Secretary first, yes, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah, and we had slightly different views of the world. I mean, why he made me a shadow Home Secretary, I don't know, because Michael's a very authoritarian person, and evidently I'm not. Um, but anyway, that's what happened. That was just a, that's just the way, that's the way life plays. And uh, yeah, well, it was it was a long grind. Um, we screwed it up. <laughs> I screwed it up. Um, what else do you know? I mean, that that was it, really. Did it mean a lot to you? I mean, was this you no. weren't you weren't you weren't just chancing your arm? I mean, did you want to become leader of the Conservative Party because you thought you could make a real difference to this country? <sighs> Would that it was so simple. The answer objectively and rationally is yes, right? But it didn't happen that way in the sense that I was the Shadow Home Secretary. I was... The only bit of the debate we had with Blair that we won was my brief. So we led... And just if you look back and you can see for yourself, we led, I think, by 30% or so. I think it was 35% on immigration. We led on uh, crime by about 20 or 25 percent, something like that. We led, even led on counterterrorism by 10, 15 percent. So, uh, and then just before uh, the leadership uh, episode happened, we had seven seven, and so I was very prominent in those terms. Not nothing to do with me. I just just fell on my brief. You know, I was the person who answered for the opposition on the day of seven seven. So it was sort of almost like it was tra- you know, on rail tracks. So it wasn't even as there wasn't even really a decision process. It was just seen as inevitable that I would be in that position. Uh, but the answer to your question is yes. But that you know, the, the, the idea that I went away and sat, sat down with a cold towel on my head and said, am I the right person to lead this country? No, no, no. Jumping forward to... I, I wish that I was so rational. <laughs> Jumping forward to today, David, yeah. some of the rhetoric that has come out of this government on immigration, since mm-hmm. you mentioned immigration... Mm-hmm. You say you, you were leading on immigration against Blair's government. Yeah. Some of the rhetoric that's come out of this government is, in the view of many people, toxic mm. and inflammatory 
and really unhelpful to community relations, to race relations. How would you handle the crossings of the channel, the rubber dinghy, the boat crossings of the channel, if you were now actually Home Secretary? Well, ha- thank heavens I never will be, but the because um, it's probably the hardest... Well, no, probably about it. It is the hardest job in government. I mean, it, you know, it's a sort of... Done properly as an 18-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job for the next two years, probably. Um, and, the, and the easy answer is I would never have got here in the first place because one of the reasons we... Uh, and it's not a proper answer, I know, I'll come back in a minute, but, the, but one of the reasons this happened was because our system ended up approving something like 55% of Albanians two years ago when Sweden, cuddly social-democratic Sweden, had a 0%. Uh, approval rate and so what happened was the Albanian gangs who were the principal not the only drivers also Kurdish gangs and others but the uh, the, the Albanian gangs saw an opportunity right and now shutting down that opportunity is very difficult and and neither is it necessarily legislation you know uh, before Christmas I wrote with 50 other people to to um, the Prime Minister and said, look, you can get through, you could put through the house in seven days as emergency legislation, uh, legislation making Albania a safe country. Right? And that were, at that point, I think over a third of the uh, crossings were Albanians, right? certainly the young men. Instead, what the government did was they, had, they packed that together with a load of other things, like Rwanda and so on and so on. And uh, so it's, now, it's still going through the house today. I mean, tomorrow we're going to have 16 votes on that, on that bill. Whereas what we should have done is take a piece of it and take... I mean, Whitehall does this all the time. You know, Whitehall takes a piece of legislation and adds everything possible onto it, absolutely everything possible onto it, because it slows it all down, it, you lose the focus, you lose the purpose. Had we just done it straight away, bang, I think we would have done a better job. We would have shut down the Albanians like that, just like that. And, um, uh, and so on. So now, I mean, it's not so much about legislation as about operation. I mean... It should never have got to the point where we had one point something um, approval, not approvals, clearances of asylum seekers per caseworker per week. That should be about 40. I mean, they were talking recently about multiplying by two or three. And Damien Green, an ex-immigration minister himself, said two or three is not good enough. It's got to be 40 or something like that. So you have to operate on that, uh, first off. I think you know we've been, it's been quite fashionable to blame the French. Uh, I think to some extent th- th- there is an element to blame. Though the French were playing uh, silly beggars at one point, but the but the truth is that we allowed them to because we didn't do a good enough job of the surveillance and the cross channel. You know, French have got certain privacy laws, <laughs> as I've um, uh, which prevents them doing some surveillance. We could have done the surveillance and said. There are a dozen people on this beach at this time, just about to leave in fifteen minutes. You know, we've we've got that capability. So there's a whole series of things like that that you have to do. And one other point, and it's a generic point. I said to you that Sweden was clearing zero. How did that happen? Well, what Sweden did was they actually declared Albania a safe country and turned around at the border straight away. But they did that by looking at the international court rulings and carefully designing their law so it didn't transgress any of them 
Whereas the Home Office, and I don't blame any particular Home Secretary, it's almost baked into the Whitehall attitude in this, the Home Office seems to sort of pick a fight with the, with the international courts, here, there and everywhere. They do it all the time. Uh, and that's partly, I think, that the actual technical competence of the legal advice to the Home Office is not as great as it should be. And you need to fix that too. And, and I say that because this isn't the only area where I've, where I've had a disagreement with the Home Office. You won't know, and your listeners won't know, that I had a big row with him over a man called Mike Lynch who was extradited to the United States uh, about two months ago now. And I think the legal advice the Home Secretary was getting was rubbish at the time. Absolute rubbish. And it's not just my view, it's the view of some very, very senior lawyers. And so I think there's an issue to solve there. So I would attack it by a number of things, but uh, a great deal of it is down to operational, uh, operational capability, which I think has been weak got two follow-up questions so that I don't forget them, okay? All right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I really do want to talk about Brexit, right. although one of these questions is Brexit-linked, and then I want to find out how you have fun, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would like to hear you say that the Rwanda... It's an unusual way of phrasing a, a question to a politician, but I would like to hear you say that the Rwanda policy, sending people to Rwanda is not acceptable and that we need to treat people who do get here. Of course, we need to have... We need to operationally get things much better. We need to clear backlogs by being more efficient, surely. Mm. We need to have better relationships with the French, and we'll come to that and so forth, Mm. right? But when people are coming here, and we don't know immediately without going through due process whether they are genuine asylum seekers or not, Mm. we surely have to treat them with humanity. And one way not to treat them with humanity is to send them to a country that is clearly not, in my view anyway judging by its human rights record, a safe country. So I'd like, I'd, I'd like to hear you say that the Rwanda policy is, is not a good one. Well, I, I argued against it at the time, uh, as you know. Um, but that being said, I'm also a Democrat. You know, and the truth of the matter is it's now gone to the House of Commons about four times. You know. So it's now our job to make it work, bluntly. Now, why, was, why, did that, why did that clash come about? Why did I take a different view? The, the primary difference of view was being my view of what a properly humane approach to an asylum policy is and those who say the only way to stop the boats is to have a deterrent that those are the two now a deterrent's not likely to be very nice is it you know so so that's where the clash comes about now I think at the moment now we're going to go through the process we are going to get to the point uh, where the courts approve it it will it will get approved in due course because that's the that's the nature of the legal process we're dealing with. I mean, most of my, most of my colleagues don't, are not as familiar with the ECHR as I am. I mean, I've actually taken cases at the ECHR and I've defeated them. Well, I mean, this case has been... The, 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 the Rwanda policy has in part been rejected in the courts so far by the Court of Appeal on a majority decision. We don't know what will happen in the Supreme no, Court, but there is precedent for the Supreme Court saying no to the I government would... if you think about the prorogation oh, yeah, yeah, case yeah, yeah. I mean, and actually, Lady Hale. Ironically, I think they were wrong on but that's another matter. But the the uh, yeah, there is precedent for it. But I think actually the big indicator is it was the Lord Chief Justice who was the minority on this. And and I am reasonably certain that the government will eventually get the the thing approved. I mean, you know, when when Parliament's voted four times for it or whatever it is, how whatever the number is, it it uh, it will it will eventually get through. They may have to modify this that. But so far, it's been a process of oh well. Um, you can't. You didn't look properly at who you were sending. Things like that. So it will get through. Um, la- not in, maybe not entirely unscathed, but large unscathed. And you see, incidentally, by the way, 
Um, <laughs> one of the people who was sort of an ally of mine on this, so ironically, was Ken Clark, and he said today there's no other alternative. You know, so, so we have to at least test it out. We have to at least try and make it work. Now, I'm not so worried about your human rights argument on Rwanda, because we will have control of that. We will, we will have uh, uh, the ability to... to I mean, they, they won't want to shut off the money that they're going to get for this, so we'll have control of it. Um, I'm, the bigger issue for me in those terms is whether we can guarantee the health of the people going to Rwanda. You know, it's a high malaria area, it's dengue fever and so on. That's, that's one of the things that, that, that fusses me. But at the end of the day now, we're, we're, on, we're on the rail tracks, you know, the station's down there, can we get there is where we are. I don't like the policy, um, but you know, if, if, uh, uh, you know, if, if you ask me, well, what do we do now? I don't think we've got any choice but to, to conclude the thing, in my view, as humanely and as efficiently as we can, and see whether it works as a deterrent policy. And we don't know. You know, nobody can know for sure. You know, I think what? I can tell you now that it won't work. But again, it, my view is irrelevant for these purposes. Second follow-up question: Go on. Yeah. Is it not, at least in part, a consequence of Brexit that this issue has arisen, both in terms of international law? or law that arose out of our being part of the European Union, and also perhaps, and this is much harder to, harder to be sure about, but relationships with the French, relationships with our European partners, who might be thinking, well, this is a, a problem coming Britain's way, and we're not entirely unhappy that it's coming Britain's way. There's a bit of that. But, the, but is, it, is it a result of Brexit? No, not at all. I mean, the, you, you, you have to look back. Uh, you, know, you had Sangat before. You, this, is, this is a long-running saw. Um, uh, and, and the irony of the saw is that people come here because they want to come here. You know? uh, and you know, you'll hear some of my colleagues say, oh, it's because we've got too generous a benefit system. Really? More than the Nordics? You, whose leg are you pulling, you know? Um, or it's because people... I mean, th this country, for, for, you know, for, for whatever reason, uh, is seen as a good place to live. And I'm, I'm actually rather proud of that, you know? And that's true around the world. It doesn't matter where you live. I used to be Foreign Office Minister, remember? And, you know, I was always struck by people's view of Britain. In many ways, I thought it was sort of a bit, a bit golden-edged, you know? <laughs> but, but nevertheless, that's the case. So, so you've always had that. Um, now, the, uh, as I think I've already said to you, my, my belief in what one of the causal problems was, was our handling of this issue when it started to break early on. You know, we, we weren't as smart as Sweden were, bluntly. And I don't know which Home Secretary it was, it's that far back. But, you know, I just don't think the Home Office was very good at the law, very good at the handling. So you got that. Now, France. Uh, look... After, after Brexit, the most annoyed country was France. Um, and one of the reasons I, I stood down was because I didn't think our handling of the negotiation was designed to cope with that. What we had to have was, frankly, a bloody great row with them early on and clear the air, you know. We didn't do any of that. What we did, what the government did for years, was just kowtow to everything. Every time they, 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 they were difficult, we just gave in which was one, that, as I said, one of the reasons I, I walked. So it took until uh, Sunak, really, for the relations to start to normalise. I mean, they didn't like Boris. I mean, plainly, they didn't like Boris for all sorts of reasons, I guess. Um, and I don't, I think, frankly, uh, I, I wouldn't have, this wouldn't, wasn't the reason for removing Boris, but I think for as long as he was there, um, it was going to be quite difficult to normalise relations with France. You can see now, 
that it's changed. You can see it's changed partly because actually, oddly, I mean, maybe a sense, it'd be a strange thing to say, also because of, of the king, because we've, we've got a king who actually Macron likes, you know. So on such fine points, pinheads, do, does international affairs suddenly pivot? Do you like Boris Johnson? Do I like him? There's a bit of me that likes him. Um, but remember, I was the first senior person anyway to call him out, you know. Uh, and the reason I called him out was because I thought he... Well, there were three reasons. One, I thought he was guilty of lying to the House. Uh, and the reason I thought that is because Number 10's got about 400 people. And you wonder where they are, don't you? But there are about 400 people working there. And what's their principal hobby? Gossip. You know, so all the things that we heard about subsequently, we had heard through the sort of gossip network. Anyway, so one, I thought he was guilty. Two, um, he, the day before I called him out, he was blaming his subordinates in a, in a Beth Rigby interview, saying, oh, they didn't tell me and they gave me the right, all that. My, I'm sorry, I'm an old-fashioned Brit. You know, I don't think whether it was in the army or in business or in, as a minister, you don't blame subordinates you just don't you know tell them off in private by all means give them the rollicking of the life but you don't blame the public you you know you've got to have broad enough shoulders to take that but the third reason was i just thought the regime was becoming too much of a bullying regime i'd met three i talked to three uh young mps all of whom would come under a, in my view an excessive amount of pressure remember i used to be a whip i'm not i'm not a wimp about these things but I just thought that they they'd been they were relying too much on bullying, and I didn't like that either. So you know, and Boris is responsible for all of that. You know, that's that's you know, wh- wh- whether he's he is himself or not, it doesn't matter. It's his team that's doing this sort of thing. You see it today. You know, uh, all the all the sort of you know, we should deselect members of the of the select committee. That's the same same mechanism. So so, do I like him? I find him charming. Am I pleased that we've moved on to a new Prime Minister? Yes, I am. So I, I think I made that plain at the beginning anyway. <laughs> Back in the name of God, go, remember. That's a... I was one of the 16 million-odd who voted Remain, mm-hmm. but I wasn't religious about it. Mm-hmm. You were one of the 17 million-odd who voted to leave, mm-hmm. but you were an important figure in that, in, in that movement to leave. And I've always taken you as a serious person, and there are millions of very serious... Brexit voters, mm. whatever the echo chambers on the other side might tell you. Right. Just tell us, and it's a sort of two-part question, remind us why you believed that we should leave, okay. and hand on heart, how do you think it is going? And I suppose it's a three-part question, because do you think it has the capacity, in, in reality, in all likelihood, to go better than how you think it is going now, whether you think it's oh, going well or not? Right. That, that's a, a good question. I mean... Number one, um, remember I was Europe minister many, many moons ago. I mean, the, the French and German media sort of dubbed me Monsieur Non or Herniet in various cases because, you know, I, my job was... I mean, I was a... Euro, I was, I was a point, John Major knew I was a Eurosceptic when he appointed me, right? But Eurosceptic, not a lever at that point, right? Um, I had come to the view, uh, not immediately, but over time, that the economic benefits to Britain, which were quite significant from 1972 to about 1995, were dissolving quite quickly. Um, so we had about 4% of the euro market, uh, market share 
uh, in 72. It round about doubled to 8% by the mid-90s, and it's gone back to about 4% before we left. Right? And the long and the short of it uh, was that that's mostly because of the Uruguay round. That's the drop in... Sorry, it's a rather techy answer, forgive me. Um, the drop in tariffs around the world, including the common external tariff barrier. So the advantages of being inside were reduced by that, right? So I thought, in economic terms, this, this has been very beneficial to us. It helped our industry modernise in some ways, uh, but it was in decline. So that made me not worry about that uh, too much. Uh, but I did think that we had an important role as in our, in our role in Europe in terms of our influence. And um, whether it's international foreign affairs, uh, whether it's just the role of the, the, the sort of European internal um, operation and so on. We were always the ones who would argue against too much regulation and so on. We, we lost more votes than any other country, but in the process of doing so, we, uh, we did a good job. I mean, I, I was negotiating once, I think, called a reflection group. And at the end of a year of doing this with, with a representative from every other country, including Michel Barnier, um, the, there, was a, there was a sort of booklet of, of our agreement. And every so often it would say, uh, we're reading through it, it said, um, other countries, or some countries disagree. And the first time I said, uh, Carlos, uh, the chairman, um, it's not some countries, it's Britain. And he said, oh, I was just trying to avoid embarrassing you, David. I said, I'm not embarrassed, I want it to be known, I don't agree with this, you know. And he said, OK, we'll put it to make it Britain. And then somebody else, I think it was Denmark, and I said, oh, we'd actually prefer it to some countries. They'd not said a word all year. And this happened, or I think, uh, something like 14 times. I mean, it was certainly in the teens. And we had been basically holding the line on a whole series, 14 different issues, where other people were very happy for us to do it because the, their own interest was the same, and particularly the Nordics. Uh, but not just them, Italy sometimes. Um, so we did it, we fulfilled a useful function. And Europe, it's important that Europe exists because nearly all the countries, leave out the Nordics for a second, nearly all the countries in the first couple of waves of the European Union had not been democracies or had had terrible, now obviously Germany and France and Italy had a terrible preceding period, but you know, also Spain had come as a dictatorship. Uh, Portugal had been a dictatorship just before they joined. Uh, the Greeks had the colonels. The Eastern Europeans had communists. So th for them, this was their first experience of democracy. It was good that they were in a group that kept them together, didn't let them go off down some mad totalitarian route, left or right. Yeah? Um, they still do a bit, but you know. But that, but that, that was. Well, you thing. think of Hungary. I mean, hung Hungary yeah. is part of the EU, but, it, but, but it, that's but, gone but down it, a very but dodgy it, but route. It, but it curbs it. A bit, you know, it's not anything like as dodgy as what went before, you know. And so I thought that was quite a good thing. So I thought we were doing sort of doing our international duty, frankly. It was less in our interest than in their interest. Uh, but the thing that actually changed my mind, I'm sorry this is such a long answer, but it's, it, it's been, been quite a complex process. The thing that changed my mind was the treatment of Greece, right? They were brought into the euro for, for political reasons. They wanted the euro to be as, but they wanted others to join, whatever to join the euro, right? Um, because that they, the, the, the political drivers of the European Union know that the being in the euro pulls you in more. It creates a sort of uh, inward driving force, a sort of pressure inwards. And they wanted Greece to join. So essentially they rigged the Greek balance sheet. Uh, you know, they got the, uh, some very smart international uh, bankers to work out how to do this. It wasn't, wasn't a new trick. It's 
they use it elsewhere in finance too, but they basically concealed from the rules what the green balance sheet really looked like. They got them in, and of course, within a few years, that fact that the Greeks weren't equipped for the euro, wasn't just the Greeks, but the Greeks were the worst case, uh, went quickly and ended up with a disaster, an economic disaster for them. Their economy shrank by 25%. Hundreds of thousands of young people left the country. The, uh, they were closing hospitals and schools. I mean, if we did something like that to, I don't know, Lancashire, the government would fall. You know, if you think of a sort of province or something, I speak as a Yorkshireman. <laughs> you know, but, you know, the government would fall. And it just struck me. And, and the, the Europe, if the, Euro, the European Union had rescued Greece and done the proper thing, in my view, I would not have been a Brexiteer. You know, I mean, I've never viewed it as, not since the 90s, viewed it as particularly beneficial to us, but I thought part of our international role, fine. At that point, I thought, this is not an organisation I want my country to be a member of. So that was the... That was the the decisive change. Really. Was that because you? it was almost a sort of an, an act of retribution against Greece on your part, or because you were worried that if the EU was capable of doing what you felt they'd done to Greece, no. then it might not be good for us as well in the long yeah, run? I don't believe in retribution. It, it, it's, it, it, no, I, I'm on the Greek side in this argument. I mean, I think they were, they were very badly governed. There's no two ways about that. They didn't bother to collect taxes. I mean, all sorts of things. Retire incredibly early. You know, all the things that, you know, that now, of course, contentious in France and ways like that. But what I'm saying is, was this a point of principle for you? Or was this because you thought that if this could happen to Greece, what you felt had happened to Greece, that somehow we could get caught out further Both. down the line? Both. Because you see, the, what many Brits don't realise is the European Union is not really designed as a democratic organisation. You read Monet and Schumann, uh, you go right back to the beginning. They, they, it's almost a Marxist view of the sort of elite leading everybody, you know. And so it wasn't designed as a democratic institution. And democracies are very fallible. But what they do do is correct errors, sometimes slowly. They hold things to account so they create a certain uh, behaviour pattern. And this is the first time the lack of democratic accountability of the European Union, the lack of a proper democratic mechanisms, really allowed them to do active harm, active harm. And in a smaller way, they did the same with Italy, you know, and you had a sort of technocratic takeover of Italy. And it's still, that's still rumbling on now. You've got a very right-wing government in Italy really sort of rumbling from, from then. Spain was not well treated. None of, the, none, of the, none of the Mediterranean countries, and indeed Ireland too, were treated badly in that time. Uh, but Greece was, I mean, Greece, it was really, really bad. I mean, the damage. And so it's, that's why it's both an act of principle, but also that it might mean in the future, some, some crisis we don't foresee, the European Union will behave in pursuit of its political aims, not in defence of what I would think is proper behaviour. So, so. You saw a tiny, you saw a minuscule version of this when we had our row with them over vaccines, you know? And that was then behaving improperly, in my view. Now, it doesn't matter, that's small. But the, uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, but Greece was not small. I mean, Greece, you know, and I expected Germany and France to behave differently, and they didn't. So that was, the, that was the driver. What was the second half of the question? The second, the, 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 part two of the question is, <laughs> part two of the question, you can be very brief, is how's it going now? And then part three is how do you think it will go? Okay. Firstly, not as well as it could have done, otherwise, otherwise, otherwise I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have resigned, you know. I just thought that May got the strategy completely wrong. And if you want to read a Remainer's view of that, uh, look at Gavin Barwell's 
book, I think it's called Chief of Staff, about the time, and he, he admitted they hadn't, you know, their strategy had not worked. It was too compliant, really. But that being said, first of you haven't had all the crashes and burning that, that uh, Mr Osborne and others predicted, uh, and the CBI predicted, I know it's an out-of-fashion organisation now, but uh, didn't it predict it. And where are we? Our cumulative growth rate since 2016 is better than Germany, France, Italy. Our exports to Europe in the last year, the highest in history. You know? um, our export service exports to the rest of the world, better than the G7, actually better than anybody in Europe too. So, you know, it's not perfect. There are things that we haven't got right, like the battery deal and things like that. But you, we're in the middle of a time when there's a huge amount of confirmatory bias going on. I mean, you have to bear in mind that the, the London, the London uh, media establishment is about... 80 to 90 percent Remainer, and they say, Oh, something's gone wrong, that must be Brexit. Something's gone wrong. I mean, we even had, we even had, who was it? Um, we had Carney saying inflation was bad because of Brexit. No, it's bad because of the policies that he was partly responsible for. You had people talking about, um, oh, we had the Hallett, um, Hallett's commission saying that the handling of handling of uh, COVID was bad because of Brexit. Unutterable nonsense. But hang on, you talk about this overwhelming. Remain media establishment, yeah. but think of the papers that supported Brexit. What about them? Oh, there's the Mail, Telegraph, yeah. I think the Sunday Times. No, I'm not sure the Sunday Times. Either the Sunday Times or the Times, one or, one or the other. I can't remember which no, way around it was. So. I mean, and, you, and, you, and you've got to think about... The not, Express, not, not the what, Sun. Who reads the Express? Come on, yeah, the without, Sun. Without being rude. The Sun, the Mail, well, the but, Telegraph. But, you know, but what you've got... I mean, the, the, biggest, the biggest player in this is the BBC... You know, which is virtually a hundred percent Remainer. I mean, I don't know any Brexiteer uh, people on the BBC. Well, they would. They shouldn't tell you, David. Well, they do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know. So, but you, but you basically got. I mean, you, we've gone through a period. I mean, I'm tempted to the Cho and Lai response. Remember the famous Cho and Lai response about the French Revolution? Too soon to tell when asked about it whether he approved of his outcome, but 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 I'm not because there are enough things to show there are some some things going well, the worst things that were being cited have not gone wrong, but it's nowhere near as good as it could be. That's the that's where I uh, I I, I pl- are you, are you please are you pleased that you. Vote, not just voted Brexit, but potentially persuaded a lot of other people to vote Brexit. I'm not sure how many I did persuade because I wasn't actually on the vote leave speaker list. I did it all solo, but the but that doesn't matter. I mean, the yeah, I'm pleased I voted Brexit. I'm pleased we've had Brexit, uh, and I think uh, and I think and you know, I I would have preferred it to have been done a bit different, you know. Um, and you you know you don't have to look very hard to see how I think it should have been done different. But uh, it's, you know, and it's got, it's given a scope for the future. One of the difficult, well, first you've got, look, you've got, you had COVID, you had Ukraine, you've had the complete fracturing of the world trading arrangements. When I said, you know, after the mid 90s, the benefits of, of the comparative benefits of Europe declined, that's because the whole rest of the world was having a huge growth spurt over 30 years, about 25 years. The greatest things ever happened in the history of the world. One and a half billion people come out of absolute poverty. That's what happened since about 90, since the Uruguay round and the World Trade Organization being created in 1995, right? That's come to a juddering hole. You know, China's no longer, I mean, China was made 
by that process. India, modern India, was effectively made by that process. All of the Asian economies, excluding Japan probably, because it's sui generis, uh, were, were benefited from it. And now they come to a juddering halt because of the Ukraine, because of the split between Russia, China and the rest of the world, because of the inflation problem, because of fear over continuity of supply, which has led us into a now, what we're into a, today, we're in a mercantilist world, right? So you've got America with the CHIPS Act and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the biggest exercises in subsidy in the history of the world. Um, on one hand, in a capitalist economy anyway, you've got Europe trying to match it. If we were in Europe, we'd be stuck with what they're trying to do. And it's, gonna, it's not going to work. So we're actually quite well place for a pivot, but, but that's, that's a long and complicated story. Before I ask you my final question, just a sort of subset question to that, because you m- mentioned confirmation bias. Yeah. And if this were a different style of interview, we, yeah. you know, there'd be a lot more to and fro between yeah, us, but this is, this is about you. But your decision to back Brexit was perhaps quite unusual amongst the most prominent Brexit yeah. Yeah. leaders, Brexiteers, whatever you want to call yourselves. And it was, it sounds to me like it was a, a thought, probably thought out yeah. reason in terms of the principle of it. Mm. But did you end up finding yourself both in the build up to the vote and then afterwards in the years since defending things or persuading yourself of things in order to justify your Brexit voting? Because it has been such a binary debate. I said I voted Remain, yeah. but I didn't do so religiously. I mean, if I'm honest, I, I think I voted for Remain with my head rather than my heart. Yeah. And that will get me in a lot of trouble with all sorts of people, yeah. no doubt. But you, you get my point that people, it's very easy in such a binary, toxic thing. But I know exactly what you mean. I mean two, I'll say two things to that. I mean, number one, I mean, it's, it's a problem of modern politics as well, not just Brexit, although Brexit... It's an early example of it. And that is, most of my life, if you looked at the distribution of opinion, typically it'd be what they call a normal curve, you know, sort of just a parabolic curve, you know, and most people would be somewhere near the middle. And and, and if if it wasn't like that, it'd be like a camel's hump, you know, two humps, but quite close to each other. Uh, The left-right things tend to be a bit like that. Um, And the result of that is that you could have a civilised debate in the middle, right? Brexit, woke issues, I mean, you know, the whole series of issues, even COVID these days, you've just got two competing echo chambers. It's really, really hard um, to have a proper constructive debate. It's one of the reasons I haven't made a big deal out of all this stuff, because I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll come back to it when people have calmed down a bit. Which stuff? All the Brexit stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, I haven't been particularly noisy on Brexit because I'm just waiting for people to get a bit calmer. Uh, but, the, but, but also, you know, people, one of the side effects of that is even in your own echo chamber, people expect you to behave in a certain way. So I'll give you an example. I never liked the use of the 350 million on the side of a bus. I thought it was misleading. It wasn't a, it wasn't a lie, but it was misleading. And a number of I won't name the others, but I and oh, God, it was two or three, certainly two ex-cabinet members refused to use it. I refused to talk about it. So when I was then, then I was Brexit secretary and I was sitting in front of the Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee, they asked me, I said, don't, I'm not going to defend that. You know, I mean, it was misleading. It was deliberately done to suck the remainers into arguing about it because it's actually, the number's probably about 200 million. Still a big number. Why did you need to make it that way? Because Dominic Cummings thought that would be a way of getting them in the argument because they disagreed with that. And then 
people come away from the argument thinking, well, it's a lot of money, whatever it is. You know, that, that was, I mean, I'm not kidding. I think that's what the, I think that's what the strategy was. And I wasn't about to play that game. Anyway, to come to it, back to your story. I was sitting in front of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and they said, uh, it's about 350 million. I said, well, I don't agree with 350 million. It's about 200 million, net, net. And uh, I got a text from Boris instantly. Oi, don't diss the uh, thing. I, I just don't, I, I'm not going to support that nonsense. That's that. So, so you know, there is, there is a risk with these things about people suddenly feeling they've got to support this or that. Um, you know, and, and if, I, if I pursued that line, I'd say to you, it's all perfect. But I don't. You know, it's, uh, it could have been done better easily could have been done better but that doesn't mean either that where we are now is bad it isn't and two i mean we haven't got mass unemployment we haven't got the the huge drop in income that that george osborne was talking about i remember once uh he he said four thousand pounds a family i think he said um and i wandered i wandered into my house where builder was uh who owned the building company was uh changing my my kitchen and he shouts out as I get out of the car, £4,000, Mr Davis, for my freedom, cheaper the price. Well, he hasn't had to pay the price yet. You don't think that inflation has got anything to do with Brexit? Oh, look, there'll be some frictional effects um, because you've got the frictional effects of the, the trade barriers, but, but they're small. I mean, you know, we're talking, we're talking about... You know, I'm, I'm probably more expert on inflation than most of your listeners. I've lived through a previous horrible era. Um, uh, but it's nothing, by comparison with the effects of the quantitative easing, with the, with the direct commodity effects of the, the world trade disruption, those are huge. You know, if it's 0.1%, I'd be surprised. So final big question is, how do you enjoy yourself? I saw on Twitter that you've just been at the British Grand Prix. <laughs> tell, 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 tell us how, where you get your pleasure from life. I'm sure you get your pleasure from politics as well, but where, how do you unwind? What do you do in your free time? What are your passions? Well, I don't need to unwind much. I mean, look, I'm 74, right? Uh, my, my Historically... My, 75 in December. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And six months away. The, uh, um, the, uh, about to, about, about to celebrate my golden wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, in two weeks' time. And uh, so, you know, I don't rock climb as much as I used to. I don't scuba dive anymore. Uh, I don't parachute anymore. Uh, and I'm probably going to have to give up flying because at some point I've got a detached retina in my left eye. <laughs> I'm not going to pass the bloody physical, you know. So, so the, the things I used to do, um, I don't, you know, uh, just money and time a decline. But, you know, the thing is that my job is my hobby. You know, I love doing this job, you know. Um, I kid myself I'm quite good at it. You know, it doesn't matter what you think. It's what's in my head that matters. <laughs> um, but the, uh, so, you know, uh, so you're right. I went, I mean, I went, I went to the Formula One over the weekend. I went there because my daughter who's got a disabled child never gets out of the house. So this is her annual treat. I try and, I try and get to go to the, the to Silverstone. Uh, in fact, the first time I took her was the day I resigned from cabinet. <laughs> and we, we put off the announcement until after we'd done it so she wouldn't be mobbed with the paparazzi. Um, so, I did, you know, I did occasionally things like that I like, but, the, but that's, not, that's not a big part of my life. Um, the truth is, you know, I'm, no, I go for runs, you know, I'm, I like the open air, uh, I live in the countryside, walks in the hills and so on. But the truth is, really, most of my hobby is my job these days it may sound a bit sad but you know the last couple of weeks um <clears throat> what we've been doing we've been having a fight with uh, 
um, the, not the judicial authorities, but the, but the, the establishment over the conviction of the LIBOR traders. And if you followed any of that, it's not been big news yet, but it will, but it will be when they all get exonerated. You know, miscarriage of justice. Um, there are two or three other miscarriages of justice we're dealing with. You know, incredibly satisfying stuff, you know. Uh, I've got one person who's one of the Horizon uh, post mistresses, in her case, um, whose life is now being reconstructed after being wrecked by the state or by the post office for the last 20 years, whatever it is. So, you know, the, the, it, I don't... I don't much need much recreation i just i just enjoy myself you know bonus question you've met some of the most formidable political figures over the decades you must have met margaret thatcher who's the most impressive british politician that you've come across on your side on the other side whichever side since you started working in politics well her by a significant margin i mean uh, but it wasn't always thus I mean, I knew her when I was a student leader. She was the education secretary. Uh, indeed, I had my first falling out with her when she was education secretary. It's very strange because I took a whole bunch of people to see her and they were postgrads. And in those days they had grants, right? And we used to go and see her each year about what should happen with the grant. And normally it was a sort of pointless PR exercise. But this I thought, well, maybe we'll try and, try and do something constructive. So I got half a dozen postgrad students, so PhD students, one to another mostly, to work up, you know, it's quite techie things, you know, uh, people living in Aberdeen, the oil boom was happening, uh, students couldn't afford their accommodation, we were looking for something to help them, through to uh, kids like me, actually, who didn't get any money from their parents as their, their contribution. And one guy was talking to her about this, and, and he's sitting there and she's sitting here, and I'm this side of her, and I can see him talking about making it a legally enforceable right for you to, to get your money off your parents, basically. And she hated this idea, absolutely detested it. She, the idea of introducing law into the family was anathema to her, right? And she was doing a traditional thing of cutting this poor young man into ribbons. <clears throat> and I'm watching him, and, he, and I'm seeing tears well up in his eyes. And I said, Christ, what am I going to do? Yeah, I'm going to get out of this. So I said, uh, Secretary of State... Um, all these people have come here for entirely altruistic motives. There's no benefit to them at all. They're doing this for your sake. So I'm afraid it's incumbent on you to be polite to them, because if you're not, we can end the meeting right here and now. And she sort of turned and stared at me. <laughs> I thought I was going to have bowls burned in me by that laser glare. And it seemed like a long time, probably just five seconds. And she said, right, next business. And that was that. But the effect of that was she remembered me. And every time we met we'd end up having an argument. And I, I, for a long, long time, I thought this was, you know, she just didn't like me or something, you know. It turned out, of course, this is, this is sort of, this was almost her sport. You know, she used to like doing this. She didn't do everybody that she had any time for. I mean, uh, there were a number of occasions um, Dennis said to her, for heaven's sake, Margaret, let the young man get a word in anyways, you know. Um, <clears throat> so she was a very interesting character from that point of view. And, and in some ways, in some ways, quite formidable in person. But in those days, she was quite dowdy. She had a rather high-pitched voice in those days. She brought it down an octave or half an octave later on. Um, <clears throat> she didn't dress, power dress the way she used to. Her nickname was Milk Snatcher, you know, and so on. So when she came to be made leader, and I was one of the people who supported her for leader, we didn't really think we had the best candidate in the world. We just thought she believed in some things that we believed in. And I think her first few years as leader of the party were 
quite fragile. Indeed, her first few years as, as Prime Minister were quite fragile. But she was... Why was she formidable? Well, firstly, she was brave and clever. And, and when I say clever, I don't mean PPE clever, you know, dilettante clever. I mean, uh, you know, she had a degree in sciences, she had a legal qualification, she was very precise in the way she addressed things. And she'd have very big strategic aims, but she'd, divide, she'd break them down into very, very fine tactical aims and do it one slice at a time. You know, so when she took on the, the miners, the NUM, who had defeated Heath, she did one piece at a time and she had all the coal stocks ready and, and, and so on. Uh, when, she, when she dealt with the other trade union issues, it was one issue at a time. There was pit head um, uh, ballots, it was right to work, closed shop, one at a time. Unlike Heath, who tried to do them all at once, one piece at a time. Taught me a lesson, remember what I was saying to you before? About, about dividing up the immigration bill into pieces and doing it a piece at a time. It's a much smarter way. And modern politicians don't appear to have that grip. So she was that. Um, uh, she was, of course, a bit lucky. I mean, the, the, uh, you, nobody would normally think of a war as lucky, but the, but the uh, Falklands War sort of made her reputation. Uh, she was lucky to have Reagan at the same time, so she could talk to uh, and get on with. She was even lucky in her enemies, you know, Jacques Delors or people like that, you know, who were sort of enemies, rivals, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, no, by a, by a country mile, by a country, there was no, there's nobody, you know, and it's very, very funny, I was due to have lunch with somebody today, um, uh, Martin Wolf on EFT, uh, but he couldn't make it. Uh, but, but I was going to say to him, you know, one of my questions to him was, am I wrong in thinking that actually some of the previous ages had bigger people. So I'm thinking Roosevelt in the 30s. I'm thinking Keynes in the 30s. I'm thinking George Marshall, you know, the Marshall, Marshall Plan. Plan. I don't know who wrote the, the German constitution, the basic law. My view, more important for peace in Europe than anything else. Everything else put together, NATO, EU, you name it. The basic law in Germany. A huge transformation in that country. Even the Monet and Schumann, the creators of the EU, you know, because I don't know whether you've got the point, but I actually rather approve the EU as a European institution because uh, it's right for them, or most of them. Uh, so, you know, and I was going to say to him, I don't know what I don't know what his answer would be, but you know, my impression is, that, and Thatcher was the last of those great figures, and I don't see any great figures around now. I mean, see, you might say Blair, you might say Blair subsequently, but I don't. I think Blair was derivative of Clinton. It's just very charming, very clever, very capable politician. Don't get me wrong, but I can't. I look back and I can't see a great thing in the in the world or national interest. That you, I mean, what do you think about Blair? You think about the Iraq War, which you know. So so you know. I'm, it's and, and and it's not just us. It's not you know, Germany, um, France. Yeah. Where's the De Gaulle? There isn't one. You know. Uh, where's the other now? Hasn't been one. So it, 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 I, I just wonder in my mind whether we've passed through an era of great men and women. There's a negative way to end the interview, but I, I get the sense you are actually an optimist. Oh, yeah, Christ, yeah. I mean, look, uh, yeah, I have to be, apart from the else, to fight my battles, right? I mean, I'm continuing in the next election. Hopefully the people of East Yorkshire will, uh, will, will return me. Um, they've done it many times before. If um, not the Tory government. Uh, I well, don't know. 
And, you know, a truth be told, because I mean, a lot of my colleagues, if you ask that, half my colleagues, probably they go black, despond. I don't, because we're still a year away. And, and, you know, gosh, look at what we've lived through in the last two years alone. You know, the transformations are enormous. Um, uh, I, I think I'm lucky as hell to live in this country. You know, we have fantastic institutions. You know, politicians try and mess them up all the time, you know. Um, but they are fantastic institutions. And what, one of the reasons I'm staying on is, you know, the ongoing battle for rule of law, freedom, privacy, uh, proper behaviour, by, by which I mean not torturing people, <laughs> you know, uh, democracy, proper democracy and so on, needs a defender. You know, and I'm one of those. You know, I'm just, I'm a foot soldier in that particular battle. Um, and it's worth fighting for because that's, that's what will determine, you know, that our children and our grandchildren, I've now got grandchildren, um, will have just as good a life as we've had, you know, or as near as you can get. So, no, of course I'm an optimist. I mean, I, yeah, and so I'm born in probably the luckiest 1% of the population in the world. And also, the other thing that's been lucky for me is I was born probably at the point of our nation's history which had the highest social mobility, the most meritocratic time in British history because it was post-war, so all the class barriers had been a bit fractured, you know, they got to talk to each other, even if it's just in the same regiment. Uh, you had a huge expansion post-war, which meant middle-class jobs were being created, so there were places for the, for the kids to go, as it were, Grammar schools were 20%, not 1% or 2%, so that helped too. The nature of our society, you know, a society in which when I was growing up, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, Mary Quant, I mean, um, David Bailey, all these, all these people were, were sort of aspirational, made their way into, you know, made their way from the ground up, whether it's Liverpool's, you know, sort of working class scousers, um, you know, through to... Freddie Truman, you know, <laughs> working class Yorkshireman, fast bowler, you know. All the, the, the models around me were huge, you know. And so I've been lucky in time and place. So I, I reckon I'm one of, you know, I, I can count myself one of the luckiest people alive. David Davis, thank you very much for answering my 20 questions. There might have been one or two extra ones. <laughs> I'm a politician. I expect people to demand more than they're really going to get. <laughs>